Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is October 21st, 2020, and this is episode 2757 of the Survival Podcast. And i got a good one for you today. This is one of my favorite types of shows. It's just a conversation with a listener. Uh, this guy does have a business. He's kind of started up, but it's not what he's really here to talk about. Uh, this is a man who just now, and I mean just barely yesterday, uh, if he was if he was born this day, he'd say his ears are still really, really wet, <laughs> uh, is separated from military service after 20 years uh, retiring uh, with full retirement from the United States Army. Uh, airborne soldier, served uh, multiple tours uh, overseas, Afghanistan, Iraq. And uh, we're going to talk about a bunch of things today. We're going to talk about why you hear me beat up on this country, but I still love it. We're going to talk about why I've been asked, would you join the military today? And, you know, apart from the fact that I'm too old to join the military today, if you meant the man I am today, would I join the military? No. The 17-year-old punk-ass kid that I was when I joined the Army, if I was that guy today, I probably would, because it's probably the only thing that saved me from a life of mediocrity and potentially a life that involved an awful lot of, um, well, maybe looking at the inside of a prison cell. Uh, I'm not a guy that was a go-to-army or go-to-jail type, but I was in a way. It wasn't that I had a choice, you know, like where a judge says either you, you join the military or I'm going to send you up the river. wasn't like that, but some of the decisions I was making were leading me down a path. That's probably, at least highly probable, one of the, the negative outcomes in my life. And there is still a lot that is beneficial to young men, especially today, with military service. It may not be for everybody. It really isn't. But for some, it may really be so. And I think that maybe some of the things that we talk about today in that are beneficial to young men are less a statement of the military being beneficial and more a statement of our society failing young men. And I think that our society is failing young men a lot. We also talk about a lot of things today, including, you know, my remaining love for this country. Just because I'm an anarchist doesn't mean I don't love America. And you're going to hear some conflict in both of us today, not with each other, but conflict within ourselves about that juxtaposition of being in a situation where there are some very good things about a country that on, on quite numerous occasions does quite a few bad things. And what it takes to spend 20 years when the latter half of them, you don't really agree with a lot of what you're doing. And I think this will be a good discussion, especially for anybody out there that's got young people in your life that are considering the military, because you know what you're not going to hear. Smoke blowing up anybody's ass. We're not going to tell you everything's great. Well, I can tell you everything's bad. And uh, I think, especially if you've served, this will be a really interesting conversation. It's going to be like listening to two guys hash it out in a bar room about old soldier stories. And you'll learn the story from me of the road that isn't there. And the most powerful case that I can make against intervention in foreign nations. 
But with that, before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one today, is BulkAmmo.com. You're going to hear us talk about breakdowns in society today and why we think both of us think more of them's coming. And improving your fighting position. Well, if you have a bunch of guns and you ain't got no ammo, you got overpriced clubs and won't do you a lot of good. You need ammo, you need it in bulk. That's why you got to get over the bulk ammo and bulk up on your ammo now. You should have done that a long time ago. But BulkAmmo.com is your source for ammo. Delivered so quick to your door, when it shows up, you'll be like, what the hell is that? That's my ammo. That's how fast it comes, really. Check them out today, BulkAmmo.com. Next up today, J.M. Bullion. You know, this copper-jacketed lead is the other precious metal, but what about the precious metal, silver and gold? Everybody should have some silver and gold in their portfolio. I recommend about 5% of your net wealth is what I actually do, uh, up to 10% of your net wealth in silver and or gold. The reason to get it from J.M. Bullion versus anywhere else is, well, they have better pricing, they have free shipping, all their orders ship insured. Um, and if you're an MSB member, you get a discount. Nobody gets a discount on silver and gold because the margins are too thin, but I get you. One, it's not huge, but it's there. And they've supported the show that you listen to for 10 years now. Check them out today at jmbullion.com. Uh, trust me, I have been approached by two other very large silver and gold houses. Big ones. Ones, if I gave you their names, you would know them. You hear them on network television. And I've turned them down. There is no way that I will back anybody other than J.M. Bullion after a year of working together and seeing how they take care of my customers. With that, let's go ahead and start out before we bring our guest on. John Gay is his name. Um, he's a longtime listener to the podcast. I want to give you a quote of the day. We didn't have one yesterday. I got in a hurry. That sucks because it's Oscar Wilde week. I might have to bring one Oscar Wilde quote into next week just because I have five. But I thought this was really a great one for today because, again, we're coming at this, myself and John, as former soldiers. I served a little less than four years. Um, three years plus my basic and AIT is basically how it worked out. Uh, John served uh, 20. And um, we're, we're coming at this from a standpoint of we got some really good things out of it and then there's some really bad things that you're asked to do. We're coming at it from our country's a really great country, and it's really got some real shitty problems at the same time. And that seems like something hard to rectify for a lot of people, especially people that are of the anarchist, minarchist, libertarian, agorist persuasion. A lot of people in that space, and I do consider myself among the space, but not of the opinion that everything about America sucks. And then that, that Oscar Wilde once said, this is such a poignant Very simple, you know, sentence. Made up of just eight words in a period. And two of the words are three letters long and one is two letters long. And it's so deep to be that simplistic. The truth is rarely pure and never simple. As we go through this conversation today, I couldn't have come up with a better quote to match what ended up happening. Because unlike a lot, a lot of times I'm doing these intros before the interview, and I don't really know what it's going to be. I actually did the interview already, and I'm backfilling the intro today. I had this quote already picked out, and then when I did this interview, I was like, oh my God, this is so true of what we discussed today. So if there are places in it where you are pulled in one direction or the other, and it's hard to rectify... Just think of the quote we're kicking it off with by Oscar Wilde. The truth is rarely pure and never simple. 
And with that, I want to say, hey, John, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hey, Jack, how you doing? Hey, man, good. You know, we've got you on today to talk about kind of how military service has shaped your life, how you've changed a lot since you joined the military, since you've separated from the military, and, and how the military, even though we uh, we both probably agree that there's some issues there, can can really be a good starting place for young people. But let's let's take it back a little bit before all that to where you were the young person trying to figure out what, what to do with your life. Um What led you down that path? Well, uh, just a little bit of backstory. I grew up in uh, East Tennessee in a very small town, less than a thousand people. Didn't even have a red light. Um, <clears throat> blue collar work was kind of the norm. So, going up or growing up, going through high school, uh, I would say I was what I would call the throwaway crowd. Basically, <laughs> sit in a corner. Don't eat crayons, don't cause trouble, and we'll let you graduate. So basically, I did that for four years. And at, towards the end of my senior year, got to looking around. I was like, man, I, I don't want to go log. I don't want to pour concrete like my father did, although there's nothing wrong with it. You know, by the time he was in his mid-50s, his back was shot. And I didn't want to work at a boat plant that was in the local area. So I got to sniffing around the military recruiters. And first I went to the Air Force, and they were like, yeah, man, that's you don't really fit with us. <laughs> the Marines were a little bit too gung-ho, simply because first time I walked in the Marine's office, he literally jumped up on the desk and started barking at me, screaming if I want to be a Marine. So, <laughs> so I just moonwalked out of there. Walked and out and you know what? You don't eat crayons. <laughs> so, you know, that the Marine Corps is out. <laughs> I, I'm telling you, it would have been a bad fit for me overall. <laughs> You know, but, uh, so I walked down the hall, talked to the military recruiter and he, yeah, or I'm sorry, the army recruiter. And he's, he's like, yeah, man, don't worry. I got a job for you. Just, uh, tell me what you like to do. So, so yeah, that, that was my initial start in the military or the army. And to be honest, it was probably the best thing I could have ever done. Your story and mine, other than the fact that you spent 20 years and I spent a little less than four, are very similar. I didn't know what to do. And I knew not not sticking around where I was was probably the best thing for me. And it probably was the best thing I ever did. And, and on that note, you know, one of your assertions is the military is often a, a good uh, option for young men, uh, even today, even with some of the problems that we have. Why do you feel that way? Uh, my biggest thing is if an 18-year-old man was anything like me when that, back in the day, you know, I, I needed discipline. I needed guidance. I'll be honest, like, there's times I was wilder than a two-headed Indian growing up. So, you know, the military really gave me that grounding factor. Even if I'd had gone to college, I would have dropped out the first semester. I had, I didn't have the drive for that. I didn't have the discipline. And I'll be honest, joining the military kind of gave me that. You know, kind of still me the discipline, gave me guidance. And also, too, in today's day and age, You know, I see college. Just full disclosure, I do. Have, I have a four-year degree now that I got in the military, mm -hmm. but it's in history, so it's kind of like Goodwill Hunting. I could go down to the local library and get the same education for free. So, but I did get hard skills out of the military, and that's why I'm, I think it's a good choice for many young men today. You go in, you get discipline, get guidance, 
no matter what happens, you're going to get fed three times a day and you got a place to stay and you're going to learn a hard skill at the end of the day. So, Yeah, definitely. And I, I think that maybe more today than when you and I were young, that guidance is needed and, and, and sorely lacking in, in the world. You know, I, I'd have to agree with you. You know, my father, he he wasn't a disciplinarian by no means. But, I mean, he did, you know, try to keep me on straight and narrow. But, you know, just talking to a lot of my friends with kids today, you know, it seems like they're just, like, there's a lack of guidance in the young men's community even today. So that's kind of concerning for me. But, uh. Also, too, I, I want to say that one of the biggest things about the military, like it just it gave me worldly perspective. You know, to be honest, like growing up in East Tennessee, the first time I actually had a conversation with somebody who wasn't white yeah. wasn't basic training, and it was an eye opener, like a good one. So, so you know, it really kind of just broke me out of this small town mindset and just. It quite literally opened up the whole world to me. So, yeah, yeah, I think there was. A, I, I, well, I can't say the same, but I can say it definitely improved my uh, relationship with people of other races. I, I grew up in a place where that could have been the play, uh, the case, but ha kind of splitting my childhood between North Florida and Central Pennsylvania, that didn't happen. Um, but I did grow up. In my you know younger days in in Jacksonville, Florida, when a lot of busing and stuff like that was still going on, there was a lot of angst. It was kind of the the last days of where like open, total, screwed up racism was acceptable to a lot of people, uh, and it led to a lot of animosity on both sides. And I had some pretty negative views of people due to that bias, and it was both from a family that wasn't exactly squared away with it, and it was also from you know, being a little white kid in a school where I was the minority at a time like that. And the military changed that for me massively. And I think it does for a lot of people. Um, and it does it in a way that's actually productive instead of what the university seemed to be doing, which is very counterproductive. It didn't make me think everything was my fault, but it did make me think that everybody needed a fair shake and everybody needed to be treated equally. And when I was in basic, you know, it was pretty much to be equally worthless in the eyes of a drill sergeant. Yeah, but yeah. equal is equal. And, and and equal is is a good place to be with your fellow man. Yeah, uh, you know, basic training. You know, we all came in and we were all equally worthless. They told us that first day. Okay, cool, thumbs up. And you know that kind of all just you know created a bond between you know some of our black platoon mates, some of my Hispanic, some just everybody. You know, we're kind of like, okay, we're all in this together. You're yeah. all green now. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you also did something very similar to what I did, and you, you went airborne. Um, yep. I, I have heard arguments against airborne uh, in the modern military because when, if ever, we're going to do something akin to you know, the Normandy invasion where a huge number of airborne troops were dropped Uh, behind the lines in advance of an invasion again if it, whether or not that's ever going to happen it is is pretty debatable but to me there is a value in in that that part of the military that I don't know exists anywhere else it's also a gateway into a lot of other like even more special uh, specialized components of the military 
What do you say about how jumping out of a perfectly good airplane actually builds character in young men? Uh, you know, if you're like me, like if I get six to ten feet off the ground, you know, my knees start shaking <laughs> and everything like that. So uh, just for your listeners, you know, you're jumping out from 1,200 to 1,800 to 800 feet above ground level. So, you know, a little bit higher than, you know, what you get on a ladder. You know, it, def it definitely pushes you out of your comfort zone, but I would say in a good way. You know, like you have to learn how you have, you have to learn courage. You have to learn how to be courageous. Uh, not only that, you know, going through airborne school, like, you know, just the endurance it takes, like the running all day, the basically you're jumping off a six foot platform for, you know, three days out of a week one time and landing, then getting back up and doing it over and over again. So, you know, it definitely pushes you out of your comfort zone in a good way. Yeah, and I'll tell you something that was odd for me. I was a hell of a lot more afraid to jump out of, like, a 30-foot-high tower on a zip line than I was an airplane. I, I don't know what it was, but what it seemed to be was that when you're way up there and you look out, I don't know if I was just stupid or something, but it was like I didn't have a real visual on impact, like, of hitting the ground. I mean, you know that's the eventuality if things don't work out, but when you're about 30 foot up, <laughs> you oh, yeah, can yeah. clearly visualize the impact if, if that makes any sense. And I don't, I don't know if anybody who hadn't done it would understand that. <laughs> no, no. When you're definitely that high, you know, you can visualize like, oh man, I'm like, if I hit the ground, I'm probably breaking my legs. Yeah. You're 800 yeah. feet to 1200 feet. You're probably like, oh, okay. Yeah. You know, I really can't grasp what's going to happen. Plus they have you so jacked up at that point. You have so much faith in your training and your equipment and, 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 and the entire system that you, you kind of get into a point of, of thinking you're unbreakable. And I think that's part of it. And I think that it's, as long as it's tempered with some common sense, I think it's good that every man go through a period where they actually get to that point, where they feel like they can accomplish anything. Because, God, it seems like so many people have so many opportunities they just sit on and don't do anything with. And I, I've seldom found, you know, outside of people that have, that have been deployed and stuff and have some, you know, mental issues due to what they've been through. Mm -hmm. If you don't have that, almost every person I know that's been in the military and specifically been through things that kind of take you to another level like airborne or special operations has a lot of success in their life as a civilian, no matter what they choose to do. And I think it's just because, well, here's my tools. This is what I have available. I'm going to do something as opposed to, well, since it didn't work out, I'm just going to sit here and wait. And I think there's a there's a huge differential there, and I don't know that it's necessary for everyone, but I think there's probably a, a significant portion, and, and we're really not talking about women, and women, of course, can go to the military and benefit from it too, but I, I see a lot of problems with young men that revolve around this lack of initiative. And I'm not saying it will cure it for everybody, but it damn sure seems to cure it for a lot of people. Uh, you know, I totally agree. Uh, when you're up in a plane, I mean, you have to be action oriented because, you know, th there's, you know, there either you're jumping out or you're not. So you're either <laughs> up and you have a good exit, which means you're going to come out and your parachute deploy safely, or you're going to have bad exit where you're going to get slammed against the side of an airplane and you'll come out with twists and everything. So. It definitely pushes you into an action-oriented mindset. Like, you know, I don't have all the answers, but I need to, you know, hey, I've got this 
direction. I need to go this direction. So. Now, with the time that you were in, you were in and through and part of the, the post-9-11 world. And that's something that, as a, a service member, I have no experience with. I joined the military in, 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 in the late 80s while I was still in high school. And while I was just getting ready to leave for basic on my 18th birthday, um, August 2nd, Iraq invaded Kuwait. And that changed everything for us going through BASIC and coming out of BASIC and AIT and, and having a, an expectation that we would be deployed. And we didn't really know what was going to happen. And that, there was all kinds of doomsday predictions about it being another Vietnam and what have you. And, of course, it ended up being a very quick and decisive victory. And then we all went home. Or we went to our, you know, in my case, I went to Panama, which became home for a couple of years. Um, 9-11 was that moment, but then it never went back to normal. It really changed the course of history for an entire generation. Can you talk about how that was and what that was like and what that did as far as military service for people? Oh, yeah. it. Um, so I like to tell my friends 9-11 was my generation's Viet, or I'm sorry, Pearl Harbor event. Okay. Because I... I came in slightly before 9-11, and so I'm there going through basic training and uh, my advanced individual training, like seeing my drill sergeants with combat patches, and I, was, I always remember thinking, I was like, man, I, like, I hope a war kicks off so <laughs> I can get one of those, you know, like, you know, naive 18-year-old kids do. But when it kicks off, it was just a, you know, nonstop from there, so I've I'll be honest, I've deployed 13 times in my career, multiple units, been all over the world. And it's, it was just, for the military, like we have gone nonstop since 9-11, basically. So it's definitely taking a toll on us, military as a whole, not just the Army. So Yeah, yeah. And so... When exactly were you? So you were in before nine eleven. Is that the case? Is that what I, I just got from that? You were. Yeah. Well, I I went to basic training in uh, September of two thousand. Okay. So, I so basically I did a basic training. I did a, like about six months of school, and actually graduated airborne school the Friday before September eleventh. Oh wow! Which, which happened on Tuesday, and. You know, from there on, I reported into the 82nd Airborne, and it's just been, it was nonstop. I mean, it's still nonstop for a lot of units, so. So you were there for pretty much, because when did you, when did you uh, retire? Uh, actually, just, uh, was today, 21st. So 21 days ago is <laughs> was my official, you know, I am out, I am free. I no longer have the golden handcuffs on me. Wow, so you were there pretty much for everything from the beginning till now. Yeah, um, that has to be a, a totally different experience than, you know, I had uh, older cousins and things like that that retired about the time that I went in, and they were there from like the wind down of Vietnam through the '80s into the '90s, and you know, they 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 were in the military almost 100 percent in peacetime. Uh, where your, your service was almost 100% during you know what they phrased as the war on terror, which is like the war on drugs, a never-ending war. Right, um, yeah. 
in all of that, you end up in situations where, and I've tried to explain this to people, uh, even though my experience is different, I very much agree when people say it's about the person next to you. And, and that's the case when it's combat. That's the case when you're deployed to some shithole that it's not combat, but it sure as hell isn't the place you want to be. And there's all these rah-rah chants about fighting for freedom and you know, fight them there, so we have to fight them here. And it always comes down to as soldiers, there's a fraternity, a brotherhood that, again, I think that people haven't experienced it, can have empathy for, but cannot in any way understand. But it always does seem to come down to your fight, whatever that is, is, is more about the person next to you than whatever slogans they put on the TV and, and feed to people back here. You know, I, I 100% agree. Every time I've ever been in combat situation or just something's happening, I've never in my life just thought I have to do this for love of my country. <laughs> I've always, you know, thought about my friend over there, you know, taking fire or like me and my friend have to run to this bunker or I have to go out here to get this guy because he tripped and sprained his ankle like a dumbass. And I got to drag him back. And that's even kind of like, you know, that's freedom guys who I said what times I didn't even like, you know, he's a jerk, but he's my jerk and I got to make sure he's safe. So if anybody's going to, you know, hurt him, it's going to be me. I can't let these fellas do it. So. Yeah. In a lot of ways, it's kind of like for people maybe that weren't in the military, but they were on a sports team in high school. You might have that guy that you, uh, you kind of screw with all the time. He's kind of low man on the totem pole on the team or whatever, and and that's fine. But God help the person that says some shit to him about warming the bench or anything when his buddies are around. Because it's like, I didn't see you there. And it's a totally different level when you talk about military service. But for those that maybe didn't serve but had that experience, it's kind of the same thing. Even if I don't like the guy, he's my brother. And that's something that I think also you get from military experience people don't talk about or understand. And it's probably for most people that never served, it's largely misunderstood. Because if you listen to a couple soldiers, especially guys that served with each other, talking to each other, it sounds like they effing hate each other. Oh yeah. Right. And I mean, guys that where you did not like them. I mean, guys that you're good friends. you take the shit piss out of each other constantly. And so people see that. And what they don't realize is, if left to themselves and not mollified, men develop coping mechanisms for dealing with each other that a lot of times allow you to just show some animosity but really not have it mean anything, I guess is one way of putting it. And our entire system of education today and control of our youth is the complete opposite of that. So they can't deal with someone they disagree with. They don't know how. And they certainly can't have that brotherly love for somebody they disagree with because they don't know how. They have no coping mechanism for that. And I think one, one thing you see in the middle, there is a huge difference in the coping mechanism of getting along with people among groups of men and groups of women. And we've also been taught that's wrong and that's bullshit. Yeah. Because guys who have learned to do this, I, I don't know about you, I don't even understand men that don't have this ability. Like when I took one of my first jobs after coming back from the military, I was managing a construction crew. And you think, construction crew, these are men. These are men, men. They're out swinging mm -hmm. picks and running backhoes and doing dangerous-ass work where we can get electrocuted or blown up or whatever. And 
you know, you, you get on somebody just a little bit, and I don't even mean about not working. I mean, like, just kind of razzing a guy like you razz a buddy, and next thing you know, you got this 20-year-old man that looks like he's going to freaking cry. And I want to say a different F word there when I yeah, think, yeah. I'm thinking back 25 years now, and I want to say that, you know, other word. What's wrong with you? And to me, that's one of the things that we have. I don't think you used to need to go do the military thing to get that, but I think it's one of the few places where you still do. And, and, and so I think for people that maybe need it, maybe that's where they need to go. And I've seen some young people in the last 10 years go into the military that I was like, I don't know that this is the right place for this person. But three years later, the man standing in front of me showed me that it was. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, you know, I 100% agree. Just to kind of a, just to back up that point, I mean, when I first uh, met my wife, girlfriend at the time, we were hanging out, and one of my good friends called me, and we probably just cussed at each other for five minutes straight over a phone call. <laughs> and then we went, and I was, was like, all right, yeah, man, I'll see you later. I hung up, and, you know, his name's Dave. So yeah. my wife was like, was like, was like are you mad at Dave? I was like, no, why? No, not at all. <laughs> like, I can't believe you talked that way. It's like, oh, no, no, it's 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 fine. Like, yeah. it's, and, you know, kind of bringing it around to today, you know, like I, you know, I have three sons. So my oldest, he's a uh, 10 and I'll try to joke back with him or I'll try to joke around with him. Well, obviously on a 10 year old level. Yeah. But he'll, uh, he'll kind of start getting like irritated. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I have to like pull it down. It's like, no man, this is how men talk to each other. Like yeah. it's not personal. I, I'm just, you know, kind of, you know, poking at you a little bit and I expect you to poke back at me that way we're having fun. But yeah, I mean, it just seems like, like he gets that, but when he goes to school and does it, I get a call from the teacher, you know, saying he's making fun of kids. Yeah. And I, and he, like literally he's not, he's just trying to. He's trying to be know, like that. Yeah. He's just trying to emulate like, Hey, let's, you know, I'm going to call you a name. You call me a name. Let's go laugh and go swing on the swing set or something. Yeah. Yeah, I know my grandson one time, I had uh, one of my workshops here, and there's a gentleman that comes here. He's a really good guy, but he just can't shut up during presentations. He's constantly interrupting things with questions. And to be fair, he's probably listening. He does better now. <laughs> um, but at the time, he had pushed me to the absolute limit. And he, he was it was like reception night when everybody's showing up. And so my grandson's out there with me. I'm cooking sausages for everybody and welcoming people as they come. And he, he comes walking up, and I, I I said something to him about it. And he said, I got a secret weapon this time, and I'm not going to be a problem anymore. And I said, what is it, a stapler for your mouth? And he <laughs> goes, my grandson goes running to my, my wife. Why is Papa Jack so mean to that guy? And, you know, I had to explain to him that that's just how guys are. Yeah. You know, so. that's just how guys are. And I think it's good he sees that. I, I, you mentioned Dave. I have a friend named Dave as well, and, and, and we do this shit with each other all the time. And, like, I try to involve my grandson in activities not just with me, but, like, so he so instead of him having to take it without anything to view it against, he can see us do it to each other and understand we love each other like brothers. Yeah. And and, and have this coping mechanism because I don't think you can take this away from from men. I think you can mollify it. I think you can squish it. But I think that as soon as they get the hell away from an authority figure, they'll do it. But then they haven't 
because they've been told it's wrong and whatever, they haven't developed the coping mechanism to actually get something positive from it, and it actually can be pretty de detrimental that way. It's like giving somebody a gun and not teaching them the rules of safety, if that makes sense. Right. It's it's almost, uh, you know, I almost like it to the you know the rise of bullying, and I fully understand like some some kids are just little jerks. Let's just all be honest, and yeah. they will bully other kids. But sometimes all it takes is if your own kid has like a sharp response back to them, and you know, hey, they'll be best friends. Like, there's this guy I grew up in elementary school, like Stephen. We didn't like each other in like first grade. We got in a fight on the playground. <laughs> Five minutes later, we were cool. We just yeah. played after that. So there wasn't. I think it's you know a lot of us is you know you kind of I don't say I use this phrase but watering down of men and boys today. Yeah. Where they're not you know they're not taught like okay you can give it as good as you get it. Yeah. So. Yeah, oh, it's mean or not nice or whatever. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. It. Yeah, we could go down that road for a long time. Let's let's talk about something else. Gotcha. I know that you've kind of moved to the world of menarchy, which means whether you know it or not, you'll be an anarchist sooner or later. Um, part of that was realizing that the American dream wasn't maybe what it was sold to you. Is I know you we've talked about the whole man next to you, you know, not thought I'm out here fighting for freedom or whatever uh, type of thing. But you probably did think that way as a kid. It's probably a big part of why you joined the military. I know I did. I grew up oh my a bit yeah. older than you in in you know early eighties, late seventies, mid seventies. We had four TV stations. Eighty percent of what was on TV during the day when you got to watch TV was reruns from ten years ago. It was the true black and white world of America being always right. You know, it was the world of even you know. There was Maxwell Smart, even the comedian, right? You know, the, Get Smart was uh, the, the chaos against us, right? right. Uh, James Bond, UK, but UK and US were the same, you know, and it was always the good versus the bad, and the good always won. Every Western was white hat, black hat. Like, I grew up with that belief that my country was the greatest country in the world, which still may be the case, but it was also to the extent of, and we can do no wrong. Wherever, so when I joined the Army at 17, I thought, even if I have to give some things up, even if I have to sacrifice, even if some of this is going to suck, anything they ask me to do is going to be for good. Oh, yeah. And by the time I left, I didn't quite think that way anymore. So you phrase that in your notes for the show about is, is waking up from the American dream, that kind of concept. What is it like? When you wake up from that dream of we are always right and we are always good, especially when you're wearing a uniform. Right. Uh, I'll be honest. It there for a while. It was like a, I, I hate to use this word lightly, but existential crisis. And it's like, what am I doing with my life? You know, simply because you know, by this point, I've been to Afghanistan and Iraq multiple times. Um, done a couple turns in Africa. And it just, you know, like all that, like I'd seen how, you know, the, the people kind of looked at us, but overall, mostly they're friendly. You know, I was holding, I was holding a, a M4, so that probably had something to do with it, but mostly they're friendly. Um, but the real turning point came, I went home, ah, shoot, I want to say around 2010. I say home back to my hometown, Tennessee, 
to help my parents do something. And I saw one of my old high school friends and I told him, it's like, Hey, we're, we're, I'm going back to Afghanistan soon. And he literally asked, Oh, we're still doing that. And that is kind of like, what do you mean we're still doing that? I've done that a bunch. How do you not know that we're still there? So that, that, that kind of just, uh, what just woke me up, slapped in the face. Like, are, are you serious? Like you don't see any of this stuff. And then I kind of, you know, my, this, the next tour in Afghanistan after this meeting, like just talking to all the, you know, the, uh, like local Afghans and stuff like that, we weren't making any meaningful change in their life. You know, for the most part, they just want to be left alone. Like even like talking to them through translators, there's like, there's like, like, Hey, we're doing fine here. We don't need anything from you. Like they quite literally just want to be left alone. So they kind of just woke me up. It's like, it's like, oh, and I, I almost had this epiphany. It's like, Oh, am I the bad guy? And I kind of had to do this mental checklist. Like I'm in somebody else's country. I'm carrying around weapons. You know, there's a very good chance that I can kick in somebody else's door and just wreck their life. Like, am I the bad guy here? So I kind of really had to come to grips with all that. You know, like what, what are we doing? So, you know, I, I have the road that isn't is what I call it. That is my, my speech now against American intervention overseas. Mm -hmm. And so I was deployed for six months to Honduras, very, very remote area uh, called the Aguan River Valley. And we were doing one of the most benevolent things a foreign military can do in another country, building a road. We did some other things there, but I mean, we, our primary mission was we built 10 miles of road in the middle of nowhere so that people could get from one place to another. That sounds really good. Um, this was high up in the mountains. It was a gravel road, but it was like four lanes wide. It was incredibly well engineered. We put in culverts. I mean, it wasn't just a path. And I thought when I got out, you know, if nothing else, I was part of that mission And that road's there, and that's something we left behind, and we didn't put any stipulations on it. It wasn't like the Panama Canal where we built it, but we owned it for 100 years. Like, it was theirs. Right, right. We went in. We did it. We didn't shoot anybody. You know, we didn't blow up anything. We made a road. We built a couple schools. We gave them that road, and we left. Now, how the hell can you say that's not a good thing, even if you're against doing it with taxpayer dollars? About 10 years later, I meet a guy who had been to that area. He said, there is no road. <laughs> and I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, well, there's still, you can get from one place to another, which is what it was like before y'all built that road. But that road is completely and totally in disrepair. In some places, it's probably worse now than when it was just a, you know, a one-lane dirt path that they drove little Azuzu trucks down. Right. Because since you guys did such a good job, Without the ability to maintain it, when the failures occurred, they were far more catastrophic. Right. So we went and gave these people what we saw as a gift. And I have to say, it was the, the most motivated mission that I was ever on in the few years I was in. We all knew what we were doing, how we were going to do it, how long we were going to be there. I was a mechanic, so I was constantly fixing vehicles that, that were damaged. There were even a couple people, one, part, one guy driver was killed, one guy ended up crippled, 
It was about a 600-man deployment, but we all felt when we left we had done this thing that we had given these people that would be there when we had grandkids. They would have because we knew what we built and we knew it was good. Yeah, and it would have been if they had the ability to maintain it. But you can't give somebody something they're not ready for yet. And if I could explain, if I need to explain to you why that doesn't apply to giving somebody, let's say, a democracy who's not yeah. ready for one yet, then I don't know that I can ever explain to you why we shouldn't be involved in these foreign countries. But if a part, if you can give somebody something like a road and they're not ready for that yet, how can you give them a new way of life that they're not ready for? Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, I'm sure your story has been repeated time and time again through all these deployments, not just with me. Uh, we, you know, I didn't, but you know, I was you know, around us building schoolhouses in Afghanistan, us installing you know infrastructure in mm -hmm. Iraq and everything. And, you know, I see, like on news, you know, just the latest example, I, I was in, I was in Mosul for, in Iraq for a good bit. So lots of hard fighting, took it back or took it, took Mosul, like that was ours. And when I see stuff like ISIS rolling in, I just think about all the Iraqi troops, like, like, come on, bro, what, what are you doing? Like, I taught you how to hold this and they just straight, up and out and uh so i'm a frequent listener of your show and i know that you said uh like you can't give freedom to somebody who isn't ready for it you know that's kind of that point like i can't like you know i can't give you this land if you're not ready to defend it you know and i realize you know they owned it way before we got there but you know we secured it like you should like it would Ah, it's, it's so frustrating. I'm sorry to. No, I understand. What it makes me think it's of, and I can't remember who it was. It was one of the main Nazis that was on trial in Nuremberg, and he he did some interviews with a psychologist, you know, while they were getting ready to hang him, <laughs> yeah. and they asked him about war, and he said that the of course the people have no interest in war. Why would the farmer, and I'm paraphrasing here, but basically why would a farmer want to leave his farm and go off to war when the best that he can cope, hope to ever do is go back to his farm and have what he already has? Right. And, yeah. and the, uh, the, the doctor said something to the effect of, but it's different in, in our world, in, in, you know, in democracy, because people have a say. And he and this this Nazi said it, it well that you you can say that if you want to but in the end it's still up to the government to convince the individual that war is in their best interest. So while it's easy for us to look at all the work and blood that we put into Iraq and then watch the Iraqi military leave, maybe they just didn't forget that. Maybe they just know that. Their life won't be better for doing that. I mean, I don't know. It's it, it's hard to say. I wasn't there. I didn't stand on that ground. I, I I don't I don't know what you know about it. But I, I often wonder if some of these times when we say these people won't stand up and fight for their own country, is it because they don't believe that doing so will make a difference? And might they be right? Uh, I mean, I think you got a really solid point there. And just to be honest, like. Like, I, a lot of time, you know, like, 
so I, so I have a history degree, and I'm sure you all know a lot of these countries were carved out after World War II. Oh, absolutely. Like, all right, here I got a guy. I got a line going north this many miles. It's going to go west this many miles. You get and, this one. He gets that one. I get this one. Yeah. Yeah, and these people, they, like, you know, like, I, I've always, and I'm not sure if this is an actual saying or not, but I've always said Arabs have very long memories. Yeah. So, I mean, like, like they have their tribal land, and it's this is this way in Africa. This is this way in a lot of the world where I don't care where your border is. This is my land, and I'm not going to trek 100 miles to the north to defend what I see as somebody else's land, even though, you know, technically it's considered part of the country that I'm a citizen of. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's there there's a lot to unpack there. Um, in the end, you went from being um, born and bred as a Southern Democrat to, to now a, a scary minarchist. How the hell's that happen? Yeah, um, well, so Southern Democrat, like that was what my father and mother were. So you know, I was kind of just indoctrinated into the, you know, into the Church of Democrats. Um, but you know, once I actually like went to the military, kind of got out got out of their sphere of influence, you know, talking to some folks. And, you know, they actually asked, asked me what I believe. Like, I remember one of my platoon sergeants, most specifically, or more specifically, uh, he's asked, are you going to go vote? I was like, I, I don't know if I'm going to go vote. He's like, well, your vote counts, you know. Yeah. I know you got strong opinions on that. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, he's, he's, like, he's like, yeah, you need to go vote. Who are you voting for? I was like, oh, I'll probably go vote. I can't remember who the dude was at the time. He's like, well, you should really uh, look at this Republican candidate. And I just, you know, you thought somebody threw a snake in front of me. I just re- recoiled at the idea. Yeah. And he, uh, but then he's like, no, nah, you got to use some critical thinking, man. And he tells me, like, you know, basically Republicans are really good for military. I got to do some research. Oh, yeah, that's that's great. That's great. Then uh, so during my time of service, we switched over from uh, Bush to Obama and that's kind of when the scales fell from my eyes. Kind of like new boss, same as the old boss. Like there, there wasn't a marked difference in the military. And you know, traveling around the world, I've had a couple of interactions with uh, different politicians, some high level. And I'll be honest, they just all seem scuzzy. Like just talking to them, it's like yeah, they're a person. There's they're talking, but there's not a soul behind them. They'll tell you whatever they have to tell you to make you believe what they want you to. And it just, like, it, I just kind of got disillusioned by the whole process. Then, um, I found this little podcast called the Survival Podcast, which I call Spirico University. And I was like, oh man, like, uh, may, maybe I should really relook, you know, how I think about, you know, government and systems of control and everything like that. So. Yeah. Um, it, it it is the case that a lot of times you have these these big shifts and politicians are are, the, are their own greatest enemy. I think if you actually get any level of the inner workings, my nephew is uh, in his final year of law school now, and his original plan was he's going to be a senator someday. And so in in part of his schooling, he did a summer internship for a senator, and he came home after that internship and said the government can't do anything. 
<laughs> it took one summer as an intern to realize government just can't do anything, and he's uh, fully sold on 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 going off into the private sector now. Kind of my last break from any belief that politics was a solution was I actually ran for the, uh, the Texas State House um, as a libertarian. And I was having a conversation with somebody about that uh, when I was still part of a, a conglomerate that I was a partner in. And our attorney, this guy named Jeff, and he was one of the larger uh, law firms in, in Dallas-Fort Worth for what we were doing, uh, heard me kind of over the shoulder. And he comes over to me and he goes, you know what, I... I know that gal they put in that seat down there. If you actually ever want that position, come talk to me, and we'll just get that done for you. Wow. That was, well, surely you're not going to install me into a supposed democratically elected position of government because you're a nice guy and you and I think the same beer's good. Right? Like, <laughs> So you're going to pull strings. One man can pull these strings, and you could tell when he said this, It may not have been true, but he sure believed it was. He sure believed it was that simple. You you want to – Texas House, that's easy. We should be talking about state senate, basically, was where the conversation eventually went. It was like I went home and took a shower because I felt dirty even having that conversation. Right. And And my thought after that was there is no redemption for this system at all. And that's – To me, that's a hard, like, I think a lot of people think that, like, I like saying that or I like believing I'm right about that or whatever. I don't want to believe that. I, I went kicking and screaming against my will into that realization. I'm still, I said this the other day when I was on the show, like, you are, whoever you were in the past, you're still that person. You're just more. Right. So I'm still the 12-year-old kid who watched those TV shows in the afternoon after school and 100% believed in everything my country stood I'm still that person, too. And that little boy in me wants to not believe the shit that I just said, but the grown-ass man in me has seen enough to know the truth. And I think that's probably a big part of what happened to you in a different roundabout way. When you started hearing people say, for instance, man, once Obama took over, the military went to shit. But what you observed on the ground is this is the same shit. And the story that the masses believe is different from the story you know to be true. Then I don't think you can help but start to question everything that you believe. Because at that point, you're like, well, wait a minute. I know this is bullshit. So what do I think I know that just ain't so in the words of Mark Twain? Yeah, I mean, deployments never stopped. The only difference between Obama is I had to hang on to my piece of gear like for one year longer than I did under Bush. I didn't quite get the newer, fanciest stuff. Uh, I mean, it was you know, there was really no difference under the whole thing. So it was just, uh, um, I don't know, I... I would call it the, uh, he tried to do like, you know, the slide of hand shell game where I got troops over here, got troops over here, but he's just sliding us around. So it wasn't, you know, I didn't feel any ease in deployments, didn't feel any, you know, e you know, didn't think my marriage at the time was like, oh yeah, like this is really going to help my marriage because, you know, nothing ever slowed down. 
So it's all just a big shell game. How do I keep the same amount of troops in rotation and just, you know, give them slightly less good gear? So was there any difference when Trump took over? You know what? I will say, um, that so, so not to get too specific because I've worked with some really swoopy special people and I don't want to dime in out, but I have worked with some geo level folks at times. So geo general officer, some very high ranking people. And uh, there was concerns floating around the headquarters about like, Oh man, he is really going to pull people out of Syria. So, you know, I realize it may just seem rhetoric, but people, military leaders behind the scenes do like, okay, crap, I got to make a plan for this, this, and this. And I'll be honest, like we did start getting a lot better gear. We started getting more and our, our, um, so um, maybe this is how it was when you were in. Uh, so we have to do, so the military has to do like a ton of like online training each year. So no, session- it was not like we, there was no online. I'm old. Oh. <laughs> there was no internet. It didn't exist yet. Um, the idiots at uh, Good Morning America had not yet had the conversation about what the at sign in an email meant. I mean, I'm old. So, yeah, we didn't have that. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but now we, we just, like, the amount of, I, I guess, uh, CYA training is what I call it. So sure. military leaders We can- didn't have that. We had the sexual yeah. harassment training and all that yeah, shit, yeah. yeah. So that that did go down slightly under Trump. Okay. So that was kind of nice, and commanders were given more leeway in order to, uh, like, okay, we need to focus our time and attention on this instead of making sure you know, everybody knows the correct pronouns for oh, all God. 72 genders or whatever it is now. <laughs> but uh, uh, I'll be honest, just kind of – to put the period on this sentence, I, I just learned to treat all leaders like a snake. And when I say that, you know, some snakes are friendly. You can pick them up. You can pet them. Yeah, well, you can keep them as pets. Some snakes will hiss at you and rattle at you and tell you not to leave them alone. But the one thing you can never do, don't ever be surprised if you get bit by one. Because at its heart, it is a snake. And it may bite you at any time. So that was kind of... My big takeaway from that. Gotcha. It is interesting, though. I I have been told pretty much the same thing, that the military has done better under Trump. It doesn't mean everything's part. I think if you find me a satisfied soldier, I'm going to show you somebody with a mental illness. Right? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just not a thing. Um, yeah. But it it does seem that it's been an overall an improvement, which I think is one of the few claims that you hear in the world that ends up vetting out. A lot of claims in the world don't seem to vet out, and I'll give anybody credit even if I don't like them, if they actually deserve credit, and it seems like there is some credit to be given there. Um, On this, I mostly came to my revelations after I got out. I think most of that is you served 20 years and I did a little less than four. That's very, very different. Timeline, very, very different age, especially joining at 17. I mean, I got out of the Army, and I was still not quite legal to buy beer. Right. Right. I had to, like, wait 30 days to buy a beer legally in the United States. So that may have just been how long it takes and, and, and how we mature as age. But I pretty much 
wanted out when I got out. I got what I'd gotten, but I still believed very, very strongly believed in what I was doing when I got out. And I didn't really disagree with the system as much as I disagreed with some of the decisions. Like I said, if you find a happy soldier who's always happy, he's got a mental illness. Like, you're going to be pissed off, especially, yeah. you know, when you're at grunt level stuff. But you came to a lot of these realizations while you were still in. What was it like being in a system that you dramatically disagreed with, but yet you still have a job to do? Uh, yeah, it's, that's where I come back to the whole, like, you know, I have this existential crisis like okay how do i keep doing this but you know then i got real practical real quick by this time i had a wife and some kids and they got real used to eating three times a day and having a place to sleep so i had to kind of like all right man you don't like this but you're a man you have to man up you have to take care of your family this is what the best thing for your family is and by that time I was over my 10-year mark, and for those who don't know, it's changed recently. But when I came in, if you served over 10 years, you could do an indefinite reenlistment, which allows you to go to 20 years. And at 20 years, I retire on half pay so I can get a pension. So, you know, I'm not going to say I had to sell my soul, but I definitely, like, okay, I got to be real practical here. How do I, you know, take care of my family? And make the best out of, because time's going to pass no matter what, how do I make the best out of everything? So with that being said, also can okay, I got to have an exit plan. Like I don't really, I don't support what's going on, but how do I support the people within the organization to make that happen? Does that make sense? No, it makes perfect sense. Um, and a lot of guys that get out after 20, you know, There's a lot of avenues open toward going into kind of the GS world um, oh, for for people that are civilian contractor to military and government, and it sounds like that was probably not going to happen for you because you just didn't want to. No, no, trust me that they it was like uh, and you know I was you know you know I was competent in my job you know. I retired as an E8, so almost as high as you can go as an enlisted guy. But I did have Sergeant Major E9 dangled in front of my face, like, "Hey, if you stay in, we'll give yeah. you this." But you know, by that time, I, you know, okay, I can't do this anymore. I got 20. When they saw that, they're like, "Okay, well, we can slide you right into this GS job." So basically, you can come back. It's almost like instead of putting on uniform, I put on a regular suit and tie and come back into the office and. Just work, and I'll, I'll be honest. Like I am, I just, I just don't want to be affiliated with that anymore. I, I'm proud of my military service. I support our veterans, our current military. But you know, I've been told what to do, what to eat, how far to run, do these jumps, go this place for so long that to be honest, I'm like I, I just want to be an entrepreneur. Like yeah. I'll figure it out. I'll make it work. So. Yeah, and you know, you get one real advantage in, in a military retirement is being relatively young and having a guaranteed level of income for the rest of your life. That's that that's a that is a, a a real benefit to sticking it out and making it through that time if you if you're cut out for it. I had a uh, anti-reenlistment uh, program of my own I developed, which is when I was on that deployment in in Honduras. Probably the nastiest thing there was the leach field that all the shower water went into. 
Right. And my tent was one tent away from the leach field, which had a wonderful smell. Just wonderful, wonderful <laughs> green water smell. And so I took a picture of that son of a bitch, and I put that right next to my rack when I got back to the rear. And every morning I woke up, I looked at that picture. Oh, gee. <laughs> and when I hit my reenlistment window, I made a copy of that son of a bitch, and I put it in my wall locker. I put it in my locker at work. I had it next to my rack. And I looked at that picture every day. So when that reenlistment NCO guy anywhere near me, I just thought to myself, they can send you someplace worse than that. <laughs> and you're going to have to go. And uh, so I, I was the Figmo guy and, 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 and went home after uh, my four years. But I, I really think that there is a there is a really big advantage in the world for the person that can make that 20 years work. Because, again, you're pretty young. I think about it. I would have been 37 years old and yeah, a full I'm, retirement. And there are not a lot of places you can do that anymore. Yeah, I'm 38 right now. Um, just for all your listeners, anybody who's thinking about going to the military, they have changed that, though. Oh, yeah. To where they now, and uh, please do your own research, look it up if anybody's thinking about joining the military. But uh, it's almost like a 401K style system that they put in now. Yeah. So you don't automatically get your pay at 20 years if you retire. That, Is and, that 100% now? Because I know for a while you kind of had an option. Uh, I want to say it's 100%. Oh. I think it turned 100% in 2018, 2019. Okay. So, yeah, I would definitely, you know, I don't want that to put anybody off going to the military, just like circling around to the front of our conversation. Sure. You get a skill, you get guidance, but, like, I wouldn't look at it as, like, I can do my 20 and then just, you know, retire and have income coming in. It's essentially like a 401k from my understanding. So, so as a recently retired uh, soldier, how do you see the current state of America? There's, there's a lot of shit going on today that, you know, I was the doom and gloom forecaster 10 years ago and I didn't even see this kind of crazy crap going on. Uh, you know, just to use the current generation's vernacular, WTF, man, WTF. <laughs> like, uh, I'm, I'm just my, like, I just want to ask her, like, what are you doing? Like, do you, like, pe people don't realize what they got here. And just from, all right, let's, if I'm, you know, I realize I see the world from the seat I sat in. You know, I got 20 years of military experience. I see it from a very, like, you know, if I got this piece of land, how can I take it? How can I hold it? You know, all this stuff. I'm just like, it's like what are you doing? Why are you burning? I, I realize this may not be the residents of the city, but why are people burning cities? Why are you trying to take over however many blocks in Seattle? You know, why are you, you know, you know trust me, I got strong opinions on police, but why are you trying to defund them, man? Like, seriously, there's there's serious reforms that I think could go on. But at the same time, like, are you ready if you just take all police away, defund them? Uh, you know, I've seen the shadier part of humanity, and most Americans aren't ready to step up on the wall and repel that. So I'm just kind of like, what are you doing is my biggest thing. You know, I, I look at it, and I think I would love nothing more than to, to exist in a stateless society. But that doesn't mean I don't want somebody doing the job of police officers. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's a function, right? It's not – but the people that are calling for this today, they don't have the same plan that I do at all. 
Uh, they think they're going to send social workers out when some guy is messed up, pissed off, and flinging a knife around. Like, and and that's just the beginning of of, of all wrong thinking right there. And this this will not work. And I do think that. One of the things that makes me wish more of our young people would go in the military is even if you don't end up in, in a combat deployment or whatever, you go in for any length of time in today's military, you probably will go to at least one place that I would consider the third world. Yeah. And once you do that, your bullshit glasses will fall apart. They will be gone. And this la-la land that these young people live in today will not exist for you anymore. And I think so many of these people, they've never seen what the alternative is. They don't know what the alternative is. They have no understanding or idea what it is. And so they think they've traveled abroad because they went to freaking Paris or something. And like, no, right? Like, okay, if you don't want to go in the military, join the Peace Corps for a couple of years or something. Yeah. Go to, go to some rat hole in freaking Africa or Central America. See, when people talk about, well, I'll live on garbage if I have to, go to a place where that's not an option because anything edible doesn't go in the garbage. And, and and live that way for just even, I think, honestly, a few months. And you can't ever again go back into this false belief system that you can just have this kind of wide-open mentality and not have any form of security and be okay because it doesn't work that way at all. And it kind of dumbfounds me that you even have to explain this today. And it, if you want to talk about how screwed up our young people are, the fact that you have to explain that. Like, I, I, I've said off in my generation as a Gen Xer, we were just as stupid as your generation. We just didn't have Facebook, so there's no evidence. Right, right. right? But you would not have had to explain to us why security is important. That is not a thing that we would have had to have explained to us, no matter how stupid we got. We might have run from the cops, but we also appreciated them. Yeah, and uh, you know, I 100% agree. Um, I heard you say one time that the cops should uh, – please correct me if I'm wrong – that the cops should operate almost on like a, like a fire department service. Yeah. Hey, if I need you, come on out. Help yep. me out. I don't need you. Just kind of leave me alone. I, I agree with that. But people are just kind of, okay, let's take that to the nth degree. There's no police department. You know, like, we are all evil, hairless monkeys. That is what military <laughs> service has taught me. So. Well, you know, I operate on the 10% scumbag theory. Yeah, yeah. Right? So 10% scumbag theory. You have a room full of priests. 10% of them are complete and total human waste. Yeah. Right? I mean, just they are. And there's about another 10% that are on the edge. And then the other 80% are generally decent. But even most of that group in the right situation will do some pretty horrible things. But if 10% of priests or nuns are scumbags, then it's pretty much a constant that 10% of human beings are scumbags. And that is the vast minority of society. But when you live with 330 million people around you, that's 33 million shitbags. Yeah, that's a whole bunch of folks. That yeah. is a whole big a bunch of problem. And a big part of what keeps them somewhat in line is the fact that somebody will beat the shit out of them or shoot them or throw them in a cage if they enact too much of their scumbaggery. That yeah. doesn't mean that I completely agree with how that system works, but I'm not one of these stupid people who's going to say it doesn't have an effect or it doesn't work at all. 
Right. Just because I think something can be done better doesn't mean that I'm for disposing of the old without installing the new. It's you know you can say that this old boat sucks, but if you're in the middle of a lake and you're in it, you probably shouldn't shoot a hole in it. Yeah, right? I mean, you should probably leave it intact until you get your ass a new boat or at least get to shore. Yeah, you know I don't like that my truck has a carburetor. I'd rather have fuel injection. I don't go rip the carburetor, rip the carburetor off. That's yeah. A, yeah. Uh, I hate carbureted engines. They're old and outdated. So I smashed my carburetor with a hammer. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's exactly what these people want to do. They don't yeah. have any, you know, when they're about redirecting the social services or whatever. Like, uh, you just. Uh. And my other side of that is, I think that can lead to mo more totalitarianism and, and and more oppressive policing. And I, I've, I've simply explained that by okay. So if we get rid of some cops. And we replace them with uh, a bunch of social workers that we say are there to handle domestic issues, because cops shouldn't do that. Whether Johnny's going to stab the social worker in the face or not doesn't take away from this reality. Would you yeah. rather have the sheriff come to your your front door because there's a neighbor called about something that they were concerned about, or CPS? And anybody with a brain's like, I don't want C CPS is far more terrifying to people. The oh sheriff, goodness. right? So if yeah. you think the domestic violence society or whatever the hell they call it is going to be less destructive of families than Billy Roy the sheriff, then you just, I mean, you are proof that our modern education system is in the toilet. Because oh there's goodness. no yeah. world you can make that argument with, with a straight face to anybody with IQ over like 78 that's paying attention. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll be honest, and you know, this is just this is John talking. Like right now, just being in Iraq, like I've uh, shoot help. I was in Iraq seven times, so I think seven, six or seven. I don't know. They all run together after a while. I'm going to get accused of stolen valor one day. I'm sure of it. Because you got but, the number wrong. Like it matters. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, basically, like just the divide between you know, Americans. It, feels like a very Sunni Shia divide and for for listeners like so two major sects of Islam are Sunni and Shia and it's think of it I you know and I don't want to offend anybody but just for simplicity think of it as like a Catholic Protestant that's no, exactly the same it's a different yeah. religion but the divide is the divide is actually for almost the same reason we won't go into it but yeah. as a as a former Catholic I can attest to that yeah but uh but basically like America right now has the same vibes of a oh shoot was it oh three to 05 Iraq where mm. you know the Shia majority or the Shia power had been um, I, I may get that wrong but anyways the main power was displaced and you had these two warring factions come to each other and just look at Iraq I mean like they will like they will kill each other and drop the hat over a difference of religion. So transpose that onto America right now, like I, you know, I'd say it. Uh, seeing news stories of people setting like Democrat signs on fire, Democrats shooting at Republican supporters, like, are you serious, guys? Like, we are all Americans. Like, I go out, like I go, I walk out the door, I walk a couple hundred feet to my right, and I go to my neighbors, and they're you know, pair of lesbians. I'm a Christian. I don't agree with what 
their lifestyle. But with that being said, they are extremely nice people. I help them out any way they that I can. They help me out. Like I don't see them as this Democrat Republican divide or a liberal conservative divide. And I go to my left. My neighbor is a detective in the uh, police force around here, kind of conservative family, Christian family. Like I am nice to them. I don't see him as a conservative Christian. So he's my ally. They're my neighbors. They're Americans. They are my friends. And I'm just kind of like, that's my view of the state of America. Like turn off the TV, go outside, talk to your neighbors and just, you know, like there's something we can relate to everybody. I don't have to agree with you to be your friend. As long as you're not just like a turbo asshole to me, like we're going to get along just fine. In fact, I can agree with you more than I do somebody else, but if you're an asshole, you're an asshole. Yeah. And I'll help the person I disagree with who's not an asshole before I'll help an asshole. Yeah. Right? I mean, it, it, that's the human, that's, that's the reality of karma. And when you bring religion into it, I think that people make a very big mistake right now when they look at this and say, okay, but they're religious and we're, this divide is secular. Mm-hmm. That ignores the fact that statism is probably the most dangerous religion humanity has ever created. Oh, yeah. And it is a religion. When you start judging people on what they say more than what they do, you have entered the the, the, the palace that is religion. And because most religions are on some level a profession of faith, and therefore you know, you, uh, the per, what the person says becomes more important Maybe not in reality, but more important to many around them than what they do. And that's what has become the left is eating itself because some of them dare speak the truth and they'll attack another leftist harder than they will a conservative. Oh, yeah. And you've seen it happen like celebrities that are extremely left identifying celebrities will say something, well, like, hey, you know, like, this has gone too far, whatever. And cancel culture will descend upon them. Uh, one of my least favorite people on the planet is any senator, but especially D- Diane Feinstein. Well, she made the horrible mistake of giving McConnell or one of the Republicans or Lindsey Graham a hug right. after the Kavanaugh hearings. And now the left wants to eviscerate her for having the, the audacity to have decency toward another human being that she does the same job as. Like, that divide, I think it it does feel a lot to me like some of the things that I saw as divides in Central America, where, like, as far as we were concerned, like, why do y'all hate each other? We couldn't yeah. understand it. We weren't there ten years ago when all their shit blew up. And I, I, I get a lot of That's why I've done a lot of videos lately about, in some of these cities, these, I call them flashpoint cities, get out, because I... My gut is you haven't even begun to see the worst of it yet. This is going to be a very long, slow, almost black hole sucking like singularity of of a limited civil war is what I see. Oh my goodness! Like just talking to some of my friends who are still in service in the kind of the intelligence, you know, human fields, things like yeah. that. I mean. Just talking to them and just my own experience, I would be shocked. Like I would be just shocked if I don't if we don't see violence ramping up with it the first week of the election, probably the three to four weeks after the election in some of these bigger population centers. So yeah. Uh, yeah, I even wrote it specifically on my 
I, I, you know, I'm the nerd here. I have my little notes. I wrote, improve your fighting position. <laughs> like, no matter where you are at this t- point in America, Democrat, Republican, what have you, like, you need to improve your fighting position, which basically means you need to work on your security. You need to make you, sure you have food. Your friends have food. Your family. You need to have water. And also, you need to, hey, get out there and talk to your neighbor. Like, I hate to say it, but everybody around here, everybody in America needs a plan. Okay, if something pops off 30 miles down the road, this isn't the 1800s where it takes, you know, a militia three days to walk 30 miles. Like, a well-armed, like, contingent can be on the way to your neighborhood within, you know, 20 to 30 minutes. So... And, you know, maybe I'm just doing, you know, maybe I'm just, I hope none of this comes to pass and maybe I'm just overreacting, but everybody needs a plan. Look, everybody needs to know how to right, talk to their neighbors, have a plan, shoot, move, and communicate. So. It's uh, the case that I, I think you, you're, you're dead on because I, I, this is not picking a political side. My prediction is that not only will Donald Trump win, he's going to win by far more of a margin than anybody expects. And my reasoning is there are a tremendous number of wells of voters that have been traditionally lockstep Democrat voters. Right. We can start out with about 3 million Americans who are, in one way or another, members of police unions. Well, that whole... That was... People think cops are being generally pro-conservative. If that, especially northeast, midwest, west coast, east coast, was incredibly loyal to Democrats because of that union pull. Overall unions. Trump's policies have been very pro-union. He said the things that the Democrats have always said that were pro-union, but then he went and did them. So that pulls a piece. I've never seen a Republican candidate with, you know, Latinos for uh, fill in the blank, uh, blacks for fill in the blank, etc. So if you pull a little bit from all those traditional places, you end up with a very heavy-sided victory. And I think that despite all the slanted fake polls and all this shit, the, the Democrats know this, they expect this, and they want... They're playing for the loss. Right. Their goal is to do exactly what they did the first time, but even more. Delegitimize the presidency and to convince everybody on the left they got screwed. It was fake. It was a you know fraud. It was Russian interference. It was laptop gate. It was whatever. And I think that if you think about what happened during the first election, there was no real heavy indicator that that violence was going to blow up. Yeah. I mean, I think some of us knew, but it was it was kind of like you had to be the doctor that could feel the pulse and go, yeah, it's 78 beats a minute, but there's an irregularity there. Mm-hmm. Well, right now it's screaming at you. <laughs> and this, this level of run-up and this level of convincing these people that you got it, don't worry about it, you know, Biden-Harris is is coming, and they're going to bring you the Bernie program in disguise. When they don't get that, they're going to go flipping nuts. 
And they're going to do what they did last time. They're going to destroy, burn, and tear down all the places that voted for the side they wanted. Yeah. And then the TV is going to call them anarchists. <laughs> so I don't even think this is hard to predict. And that's why I've been saying I agree with you on being ready no matter where you are. But if you're in Portland, Seattle, Los Angeles, San Francisco, etc., you ain't got out yet. Get out, right? Like, get out because this shit, at least take a vacation around Election Day because this shit is going to go down. I'll and, be honest, at this point, if I was in these big cities, like, you know, if you can't get U-Haul, just rent an RV, man. Just, <laughs> hey, just right, get out, go go, go to a campground, something like that. And whenever they, like, you know, if the RV place isn't burned down by that time, just be like, hey, I want to extend my rental. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> I, I actually heard reports of people in California that couldn't get a U-Haul. They were, like... Mom and dad get in a car, <clears throat> drive to Nevada, rent a U-Haul in Nevada, take the U-Haul back to Los Angeles, load the U-Haul, and go. Man. That is, remember the old saying about the ships and when the rats in the middle of the ocean start jumping off the ship, buddy, you better get your ass in a lifeboat. Because that rat is taking a hell of a risk, and it knows something apparently you don't. That ship is going down. Oh, yeah. And yeah. that is every giant Norwegian rat on the wooden ship just bailed over the banister, and you got the one kind of special rat that eats crayons going, it's going to be okay. <laughs> it's going to be fine. Like like a Disney movie or something. Like the dumb rat is still there. And you look at the dumb rat and go, well, he's still there. I, I can hang out. He ain't left yet. That's the person when you go to an airport and there's a storm and every single thing on the monitor says canceled and they just ain't updated it yet and one flight says on time and it's theirs and they're smiling and you just yeah. look at them and think you do eat the purple crayons because they taste like grape, don't you? I don't know. Maybe they just have a gambling problem. They're just like, oh, man, like I can beat the odds. I got it. I got, <laughs> I got it. it. There's a hurricane outside. Planes are upside down. But my, that monitor says it's on time. And I think for a lot of people in these cities, like I don't know what you're waiting for, but all the smart rats, all the ones without special needs have all jumped out of the boat. And I, I think it's time to at least don't be there. Um, and, and really, above it all, don't. Don't do stupid things in stupid places with stupid people. So if you yeah. are going to stay in one of these places and you live kind of in the outer burbs or whatever, and all, don't be the week of and the week after. Do not be driving through the downtown area. If your job says you have to come, tell them that they can go there and you'll see them in about a week. Like, don't be what was his name uh, during uh, Rodney King rights, Reginald Denning. Oh yeah, yeah. Right. Don't be the guy ripped out of your truck, you know, because they'll do it. I'm yeah, you know, definitely don't be that person. Don't, you know, I, I love a good disaster as much as the next person, but just stay home, hang out. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Dead it's rescuers like, save no lives is a credo for a reason. It's true. Yeah. Right. Um, mm -hmm. Now, I can tell from talking to you, you're like me. You don't, we, we, we have just spent some time kicking the shit out of America. And I think it deserves it. But... <clears throat> It's also a hell of a lot better than, than most places. I'm not going to say any place else because I'm not sure I know that anymore. But I know a hell of a lot of places that I'd much rather be here than there. Oh, yeah. And they're not all places with people shooting at each other. They're just like, you know, I really don't want to be in Honduras. 
I spent six months there. There's some really beautiful places in Honduras, but I don't want to live in freaking Honduras. When somebody, you know, comes here from Honduras or El Salvador or Nicaragua, I understand why, and I think maybe our people could do with a little bit more appreciation for what we have, and maybe, maybe that's maybe that's the solution. Is the first thing is to start appreciating what you have instead of just believing the it's great because they tell you it's great on TV. But appreciate the reality of what you have because, you know, if you think about it, you're old enough. You might be like me where, like, your first car was a few hundred dollar or a few thousand dollar car you worked for. Oh, like, yeah, yeah. No matter what a piece of shit car that was, you took care of it, you took it to the car wash, vacuumed it, you know, you put a steering wheel cover on it, you did whatever you could to spit shine a turd of that car. But you see kids today, they're given damn near brand new vehicles. And they don't take care of it for shit. And I think it's because they don't appreciate what they have. And I think that's how America's become with our country. Like, we're we're screwing it up because we don't appreciate it for what it still is. Yeah, 100% agree with that. Uh, to be honest, like, my, my perspective on America is, you know, in my heart of hearts, I am still a patriotic American. Like if I like something popped off, I am on the front line ready to defend this nation. And the reason I, I say that is because, you know, I can walk downstairs, turn on the faucet, and I have clean water. We have so much clean water, we use it to flush our waste in the toilet. Um, I can go to the grocery store, I can get food. You know, hell, I have a robot vacuum downstairs vacuuming up my living room while I'm sitting up here doing this podcast. Like a lot of other countries don't have that. And just to, you know, put a little bit more, you know, put the cherry on top of it. You know, our infrastructure allows us for freedom of movement. You know, if, if you are a, just a dynamical socialist and you know just can't wait to give your money away in taxes, you have the absolute right and ability to pack up and head West to California you can do that. Nobody's going to stop you. That being said, if you don't like what they're doing, you have the absolute right to pack up and ability to move to some other state in the nation. Like most Americans just don't, they don't see how good they have it. And it's, it's really frustrating for myself and a lot of, you know, my friends because like we see somebody complaining, like the rotisserie chicken is out at Harris Teeter up the road, our local grocery store. It's like, come on, bro, are you serious? Why don't you just walk five feet over and get the chicken that they parted out, which is still, which they put on a rotisserie. They just it's, cut it up for you. Yeah, they just cut it up. Like, you know, man, pay the extra 30 cents, bro. Like, it's not, people just don't see how good they have it. And I mean, not only that, you know, just because I'm in the military and I'm that guy, like, we have the Second Amendment, and I realize that's always being encroached upon, but you go to other places like Africa, the Middle East, stuff like that, you know, where, like, you're not always allowed to, you know, maintain a firearm, or it's heavily restricted. So, I don't think p people understand how much power that gives you in order to resist. I mean, I, I had somebody tell me, I was, he's like, I was like, Really, you're going to defeat the government with a uh, M4? And my my whole mind went back like, well, I mean, the, the Vietnamese seem to do 
pretty good with SKSs. Yeah, you know. And they're, they're shit, right? I mean, flip-flops, SKSs running around their own jungle. Like, they seem to do all right. So. Well, and the Second Amendment isn't just about protecting yourself from, you know, the military of your own government or anything. It's about protecting yourself, period. Yeah. I mean, to me, I, I, I am more concerned by the numbers that some douchebag from down the road will come harm me than I am that, you know, the, the sheriff's department's going to kick my door in. Oh, yeah, obviously. I, I mean, obviously that can happen, too, incorrectly, and, and people, innocent people can get killed that way. But in general, by the numbers, you know, the shitbag that thinks I'm the guy that owes him dope money because he's high uh, and, and got the wrong house is more likely to be a threat to my existence and my family's existence than the military. And you know what? Gun works just as good as on him as it does anybody else. And that is, the purpose of the Second Amendment wasn't just to preserve liberty from the standpoint of being able to protect yourself from a tyrannical government or to rebel against your own government. It was written at a time when we were settled in this country and most people would be on their own if attacked. And yeah. it was in seen, seen as inherently necessary for the preservation and protection of individuals from other individuals as much as for the purpose of a militia. And, and, and that's what that was really all about. And if you want people to really understand how limited this right is in other parts of the world, I remember reading one of Peter Capstick's books. Now, he was working for, I don't know, for Uganda or South Africa or some African country as a cropping officer. His job was to shoot elephants. He's walking around with, you know, a double-barreled 470 nitro, but he couldn't have a handgun. And he talked about how he ended up in a situation where basically a leopard come out of the woods and pinned his rifle against his chest. And he got all tore up and how much better off he would have been with a handgun. But as a cropping officer working for the government, he would have went to prison for the rest of his life. And I imagine in, like, if you have a choice between whatever country it was, that prison and one in the United States, you probably would pick San Quentin before that. Yeah, I'm And sure. he was a freaking cropping officer that was armed as part of his job, and he could not own a sidearm. And if, if you really let that sink in, how blessed we are for the freedoms that we have with firearms in this country is probably why we haven't lost many of those other freedoms yet. Because I do think the situation in Hong Kong might be a little bit more differently if instead of bows and arrows, those guys had freaking ARs. Yeah, I totally agree. I think uh, like the Second Amendment is really a linchpin or the keystone for all the other rights. Because, you know, I can, you know, freedom of speech, but, you know, if somebody points a gun at me, I'm going to shut up real quick. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, okay, hey, bro, okay, we only have to do this. Yeah. You know, have the ability to, all right, well, you know, me and my buddies, we got one of those and some more. You know, I'll say what I want. So that's kind of my view on the whole, like. Just, well, and all this Antifa shit, they always talk about we're going to go to the suburbs, but they don't. And there's a reason. And if you want a you know, modern tale of two cities, look at these Antifa demonstrations in Dallas versus Fort Worth. Right. Fort Worth is a Republican-run city. Little mousy Betsy Price did let people know 
before the demo, like we will support your right to protest and you can walk across the bridge and you can put in front of the Capitol and we'll give you a permit. But you should know if you break into somebody's business in the state of Texas, they do have a right to defend themselves with legal force if necessary. Not a window cracked. Not a window cracked. The model of what we would call peaceful protesting. Blocking roads and shit, sure. Nobody went in anybody's business. Nobody broke anything. Over in Dallas, they had the same, not as bad, but the same kind of burning and you know violence and all that because a city run by people that basically said anybody defending themselves will be prosecuted. Right. So, so if you don't think the guns prevent violence, all you have to do is look at that. They were the same people marching. Right? And it's not like Fort Worth doesn't have a seedy underbelly of people that will take advantage of a situation like that. It was the flat knowledge that, oh, I'll get smoked. And, yeah. and I would you know, conservatively estimate that if you break into a business in downtown Dallas, you have about a one in a hundred chance that that person on the other side of that door will shoot you. It's, one in a, it's very, very low. If you do it in Fort Worth, I think your odds are about one in three. <laughs> and also, yeah. if you're going door to door, your number will get punched. And, and I think that, like, if there is any doubt that the gun dissuades this type of action of one group of civilians on another, all you have to do is look at where all the violence was. And none of it was in places where people are generally armed and generally have their right to defend their property and their persons uh, recognized. Oh, yeah, totally agree. I mean, I live in North Carolina on one of the uh, towns on the outskirts of Fort Bragg. Oh, yeah. For those who don't know, Fort Bragg has some of the most well-trained military operators on planet Earth. When the whole Black Lives Matter protest started kicking off, we had a very peaceful uh, <laughs> protest of people driving around town. You know, very nice. Um, they went to the Walmart and held up signs, and that was it. Because, so instead of going to Target and stealing TVs, they went to Walmart and held up signs. Yeah, yeah, okay. you know. So, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, they held up their signs. Nobody got crazy. You know, maybe they're just good people. Maybe it's because I got a Delta operator down the road who, uh, you know, when he's in a firefight, his heartbeat is 45 beats a, a minute. <laughs> you know, like he yeah. knows what he's doing. People around here knows what they're doing. So I'm I'm not that well trained. I know what I'm doing. Like if people want to get silly, that's fine. We can be silly, but you know I'm going to go ahead and send you to the next world if you just f around a little bit too much. And I think people know that in these kind of well armed areas. You know, and and it, it's not that we want that to happen. Far oh, from good. it. But the fact that it can happen is what actually keeps it from happening. Because otherwise you get something like Kyle Rittenhouse where because nobody will do anything, some young kid that doesn't know any better goes and inserts himself into a really bad situation. And no matter what happens, that kid's life is ruined. All the people lionizing and cheering him and stuff like I guarantee you if you went and you had some magic wand and you said to that kid, I can make it all go away right now and change the decision you made that day, he would take that immediately. Why didn't his mom beat his ass? I don't sorry, know. Sorry to say that, but I, I don't know. Where, where is his parents? And whoever gave him the AR helped me defend my business. Yeah, thinking, but he's seventeen. You're like, going. I, yeah. I'm middle aged, and you know, you know, I would, you know, 
I will say that he performed very well in the situation. Oh my God, he looked like an operator. I, I'm telling, like he had more strength than I would have had. And, and I, don't, I don't know about the first shooting. Like that's something that's really hard to tell. But that second one, and people are like, well, the guy that hit him with the skateboard didn't hit him that hard. No, screw that shit. You try to hit me in a skateboard while other people are screaming, kill him. You're getting shot, you know. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, yeah, and it was he shot only people that that were immediate threats. He held his fire. He got up. He walked away. He looked like somebody with way more. Tra- I don't know if there were just there's that place that you have that zone that you get to, and he just fortunately was there because that could have turned into what they claimed it was a mass shooting. Well, you, you know, know the obvious answer to all that, right? Video games. He's a CIA plant. They, uh, well, yeah, there's, yeah. He's, he's a CIA plant. He's stirring the pot up there. <laughs> yeah, that's the worst CIA plant ever. If he is, he's an Oswald plant. He, he was in on it, but he didn't know it. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so speaking of, you know, stuff is going on, what are you doing now? Like, you're, you're out of the military. You're not doing the government contractor thing. You talked about entrepreneurship, woodworking a little bit. What, what's your life like today? Well, um, I am trying to start a, well, I've started, I'm trying to build up a successful woodworking business. So I'll be honest, I know nothing about business, but I know how to build stuff. So I'm just, hey, one step at a time, wake up, build something, see if somebody wants to buy it. Somebody calls me, wants to build this, I build it. So I just, um, you know, I've got the military retirement coming in and I, you know, I've got a little bit, it gives me some breathing room right there. And I just, I just want something that is kind of mine and I'm not beholden to, you know, I realize clients are the priority, but like, I don't want to be told like you have to wake up at this amount at this time and be here at this place. I, I, you know, I go out to my shop, I turn the lights on, I drink my coffee, I look at my little worksheet I got to get done and I do it. And I just, you know, I'm trying to, trying to build this little, uh, little life for me because um i'll be honest jack i i don't want to stroke your ego but uh like a lot of things like you said over the past like you know make your dash count like i, I really take that stuff to heart so i'm just trying to build a life where you know i can kind of run my own business i pick up my kids from school uh i'm with the family on the weekends i set my own schedule things like that so that's that's as good as anybody can hope for, man. I really think that that's that's wonderful. And you know, you say you don't know anything about business, but you know how to build stuff. So you're just gonna get up and build something, see if somebody will buy it. You, you keep doing that, you'll figure out everything you need. Because I've known people that have gotten into business, and if they had just done more of that, they would have made it. You know, I know people that they were so worried about the operation side of the business that they never actually sold anything. Right. You know, and I always say that with people who want to go into farming. You know what you should do? We say, well, what's your model, right? Because it's like, well, I'm going to get a loan, and I'm going to get a combine, and I'm going to sell with subsidies. Okay, yes, you're making a real estate play. You ain't going to make no money, but you're going to own a whole bunch of land you're going to sell. Okay, fine. That's that's that business of farming. When you hear the person that wants to be a small-time grower and all, and they're going to sell locally and sell direct, and uh, you know what you should do is go find a bunch of people already growing some shit, start a co-op, and develop a market, because anybody can grow food. Right. And that shit rots if you don't sell it. And so produce and move 
if you do that, you build a customer base. You build a customer base, you have everything. So, uh, And maybe you'll end up finding there's something else you want to do eventually. I, for every business I've been successful with, I've blown up four. You know, but you gotta you got to take a shot at it, and if you do, you'll learn from it, and, you know, you do have that cushion of income, so that's great, and you got your family, and you're happy where you're living, and shit, that's, like I said, that's about as good as anybody can do. Yeah, I mean, not not bad for a, you know, small-town redneck from East Tennessee, so. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a whole lot worse places in Tennessee to be from. I, uh, my wife and I talk often, and if we ever left Texas... There's only two places we'd even look at. One's Tennessee and one's Florida. Oh, okay. You know, I mean, that's there's a lot to do with government there as well, but one's mountains and one's beaches. And that's, the thing about Florida is we'd have to spend a hell of a lot more money because we don't mean the whole place. Oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> we yeah. mean that little narrow-ass band on the Gulf of Mexico, right? Like, if it ain't on the damn ocean, I don't want to live in Florida. Tennessee's got a lot more choice for me in it. Um, it's, it's a... It's a It has really got a lot going for it, man. Well, hey, I appreciate you being with us today, John. Um, this is a little bit different of a type of show, just a discussion between two old soldiers and uh, a view of the world, and I think the world could do a little bit more like that. So uh, thanks for being with us today. You got anything where people can check out what you're doing, like a website or Instagram or something like that? Uh, I don't have a website yet. That's next on the, the list. But a uh, little small woodworking business on Facebook called Volunteer Woodshop. Obviously, I'm from East Tennessee. I'm a Tennessee volunteer. I believe in volunteerism. So, hey, it made sense to me. Gotcha. But yeah, Volunteer Woodshop on Facebook and Instagram. So I can, you know, I'm kind of broad right now. I can do just about anything. But, uh, you know, hey, check me out if you're interested. If if not, that's fine, too. I'll make sure uh, that I put links to that stuff in the show notes today. And with that, John, thanks for being with us today. All right. Thank you very much. You have a great day. All right, that was a really enjoyable conversation. It really was, and uh, I, I do hope that, again, the quote of the day sort of rings true for you in, in our discussion today. The truth is rarely pure and never simple. I think we have gotten to a place in the world where we want to believe that the truth is the truth and absolute, and there always is an underlying absolute truth. There always is. I'll acknowledge that. There is a truth. Something is either or it isn't. There is or there isn't a sun. That is not an opinion. It either exists or it does not. And you can look out in the morning and there it is. You can see it. Spending eight hours a day in the sun, good or bad. There's probably a truth there, but it's rarely pure because now we've entered the world of opinions. And the problem with government, I mentioned today that government is the world's most dangerous religion. Credit to uh, Larkin Rose, I believe, for that. But uh, it is. And the problem with religions is opinions become seen as facts. And opinions that are seen as facts become enforceable through the use of force. And worse, it is forced by proxy. People are able to enforce their will on others who would never be able to enforce their will on anybody unless they had thugs to do it on their behalf. The truth, the truth is absolutely seldom pure and never simple. 
Anyway, with that, let's remind you guys, if you like the show and the work that we do, you can help support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. If you do your online shopping at tspaz.com, no matter what, uh, you will help support us and the work that we do. Um, when it when it comes to T-SPAS, again, everything you ever see at T-SPAS, I have personally spent my money on it. I have, in many cases, bought it many times over if it's something that's consumable. And if I would not spend my money on it, I would not recommend it to you. Unlike a lot of people that do online reviews of products, you won't go see a chart with 10 different items on it and saying, well, buy this one if you want to buy the cheapest one, and this is the middle. You're going to see, for the money, for this thing, this is the best recommendation that I can make. And I believe that's the only way to do that with integrity. Today is an item that, if there were multiple ones like it available for the price, I'd say it doesn't really matter. But it's the item itself, it's the thing that matters. These are monoprice releasable cable ties. These are basically zip ties, you know, cable ties. Zip and they make a tie. Except they have a little tab on them, and you push that tab in, you can take them back off and put them back on. They're not a one-way procedure. You know, zip ties are generally zip, and then you cut the end off if it's long and in the way. And then if you need to take it off, you cut it off, and it's garbage. With these, you can use them over and over and over again. There's to so many things I use them for on my little farm. And I have them in my go bag. I have them in my glove box. I have them in my tackle box. They are just one of the most flexible tools you can use. If you, There's an old saying about rednecks. If a redneck cannot fix it with bailing wire, duct tape, and zip ties, it is not repairable. And that's almost true. And if you want to hear a funny and dangerous redneck repair involving zip ties, read the write-up today on these things. You can find it at tspaz.com or thesurvivalpodcast.com. Scroll down. Remember, no matter what, do your online shopping at tspaz, and you help support us in the work that we do. With that, let's talk about our song of the day today. Um, it is Van Halen week. We are recognizing the loss of any Van Halen in the minds of many people, the greatest guitarist that ever lived. Um, some people would say yeah, some people would say no, so and so's better, what have you. But remember the 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 the, the truth is uh, seldom pure and rarely simple. I think it is pretty simple and pretty pure to say that he's one of the best guitarists to ever live. This song is uh is the most non Van Halen Van Halen song in existence. I almost went off of John. John Adams is the one providing the music again. Uh, I got over my little period of time wanting to do the music myself. Went back to his list. And I almost overruled this one and picked something else out because it's so bubblegum for Van Halen. It's Dancing the Night Away. and But I did it because it's the song that made Van Halen a success. Um, this al the album that this was on, and I think it was Van Halen 2 was the album it was on, sold a million copies after this song got radio play. And it's often the case that bands like Van Halen that aren't bubblegum, if they want to be able to be heard, they have to release something like this to get radio play, and then once they make it, in many ways, they can do a hell of a lot more of what they want instead of what they're told. But they were told by the record label, this will be the, 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 you know, the single that's released on the radio first off this album. We don't want it. We don't care what you want. We know better. Sometimes, sometimes, 
people you disagree with do know better. Now, had they released something else, would they have done just as well or maybe even better? We don't know. We do know that releasing this song did work, and the truth is, is, is rarely pure and never simple. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and wrap up. It's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast.